Well, hi, Emmanuel Faye. Thank you so much for joining us on whatever week this is of Church Online and the coronavirus lockdown. I've got a question I want to ask you as we begin our time today. How are you feeling? No, like really think about it for just a moment. How are you feeling? Because if you're anything like me, this whole situation is stirring up all sorts of emotions in me. And some of them I'm having a hard time pinning down. I mean, wouldn't it be nice to put on one of those mood rings, you know, that they used to make and to be able to identify exactly how you're feeling and maybe even to diagnose why you're feeling that way? A few nights ago, my family and I, we, we were sort of started this practice of watching a family movie together once a week, and we watched the movie Inside Out. I wish somebody would have warned me that this was a movie about emotion that an 11-year-old girl has around moving. Because I'm not sure exactly how many people in our family were crying by the end of the movie, but I know there was at least two, my wife and I. But the main characters in this movie are this 11-year-old girl's emotions. It's the emotions of anger and fear and sadness and joy and disgust. And they're all vying for control of her life. They're trying to help her make sense of her life. I don't know about you. My, my COVID experience has been one that's full of emotions. Emotions like... Fear? What's the future hold? You may have experienced some emotions like anger. Like maybe the job that you had just sort of went away and you're frustrated and you're upset. Or or maybe you felt just this latent sadness that there's people around you that are sick and the world has sort of come to a halt. Or maybe you felt disgust and have just thought, There's no clear path forward. Why can't we figure this out? In so many ways, I think we feel like Will Ferrell felt in Anchorman, that we're caught in this glass cage of emotions. And the world just seems like it's pressing in. What has your experience been like? Because my guess is you've had a lot of things that have been stirred up in you. This wildly popular Harvard Business Review article came out a few weeks ago, and it was entitled simply, What You're Feeling is Grief. And it talked all about the the losses that, as a community collective, we are experiencing. Yeah, emotions are are running high. But here's what I want to dive into today. Um, Number one, what is an emotion? And then what do we do with them? What do we do with them? What is an emotion? See, here's what an emotion is. It's a feeling that's either conscious or subconscious, like happiness or love or fear or anger that's caused by some sort of situation or stimuli that's in our life. And here's what the studies show. The studies show that the ways that you and I deal with our emotions 
will to a large degree shape the quality of life that we experience. See, if we have all the smarts in the world, but we don't know how to regulate and deal with our emotions, we're going to be a train wreck. We're going to be really hard to be around. It's the reason why in schools now they're starting to teach our kids how to identify and how to regulate emotions. Listen to the way that Daniel Goleman, the author of Emotional Intelligence, wrote about it. He said this, What really matters for success, character, happiness, and lifelong achievement is a definite set of emotional skills. Your EQ, not just your cognitive abilities that are measured by conventional IQ tests. See, but here's the, the challenge, is that if you've been in church for any sort of time, my guess is that you've started to grapple with, or maybe even be handed subtly, it's unintentional usually, this idea that we should operate based on facts, not based on feelings. It's almost this idea that we should just push our emotions aside and just live in our head. I don't know if you were sort of shown this diagram in Sunday schools with the, the, um, the engine being facts and behind the engine you have um, faith because faith is built on facts and then you have behind that the caboose of the train is feelings. Wouldn't it be nice if it worked that easily? <laughs> if it was that simple to just figure out, just operate based on facts. And we could just check that off of the list and then say, okay, well now we're ready to go. That idea was actually formed and based in the 18th or 19th century. It was based off of a Platonic thought and um, rationalism and many followers of Jesus because of it have started to equate stoicism with spirituality. We've started to say that the mature believer is actually the one who's unemotional. Here's my question though, is that healthy? Is that sustainable? Is that what Jesus did? And is that what the Bible would teach? See, because every single one of us is going to do something with our emotions. They're a part of being human. You have them, which is why I begun this time by asking, how are you feeling, really? And see, we're either going to be directed by our emotions, they're just going to control us, which is unhealthy. Another unhealthy way that we can deal with emotions is sort of the Buddhist idea of detachment. We just sort of say, we're going to um, not be directed by it, but we're just going to sort of push that to the side and be a lot more stoic because any form of suffering is found in a desire. So let's just get rid of all of that. Or maybe we can distract ourselves. This is the secularist view of what to do with our emotions. Let's binge another Netflix show. Let's watch Tiger King again, right? Um, let's just detach. Let's eat. Let's shop. Let's do something to distract ourselves and occupy ourselves. Or we will try to displace. And sometimes Christians are really, really good at this, where we'll have an emotion and we'll quote a Bible verse. We'll have an emotion and we'll sort of use a trite cliche to try to cover it up. We'll, we'll try to just say, that's there, but we're going to move on without really interacting with it. What if there's a better way? What if there's a way that 
Jesus taught us that's ancient and beautiful and true and actually leads to a life of abundance. See, I, I think Pete Scazzaro was right when he said, it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And see, here's why I'm so excited about the next few minutes. Because I think for some of you, today could be a breakthrough. That the Spirit of God might bring you freedom in some areas in your life that right now you're in confinement. Let's learn from Jesus what to do with our emotions and how to deal with them in a healthy way because they are a part of being human. We can't run from them, but we can interact with them in a way that leads to life and vitality. So if you have your Bible, open with me to Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to be in verses 36 through 46 today. Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. That means the olive press. And what we're going to see is that Jesus doesn't hide from his emotions. He actually just honestly brings them right before his Father. So starting in verse 36, this is the way Matthew records this section of his gospel. It says, And then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray so that you do not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And for a second time, he went away and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 43. And again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. There's three emotions that Jesus is feeling in this moment, at least. Three that he tells us about. It says, number one, that he's sorrowful. In the Greek, it's this picture of being engulfed in grief. Almost like a, a tidal wave of grief is just washing over you. I mean, Jesus knows that the cross is in front of him. He knows that separation from his father is in front of him. He knows that he's going to carry the sin and shame of all humanity. And he's just sitting under the tidal wave of all of those emotions. He's sorrowful. And next it says he's troubled. It's this feeling of, of fear or, or almost like a lack of courage. Can you imagine Jesus, the Son of God, feeling troubled? And then I think there's this latent frustration within his interaction with his disciples. He's like, 
You guys couldn't pray for like just a few minutes with me? Like, come on, you guys. I've just washed your feet and you couldn't stay awake. I think he had to be a little bit frustrated. I mean, I mean, and I get it, and I'm sure you probably do too. If you've walked through an intense season of grief and suffering, you know that it's emotionally taxing. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he does the exact same thing that, that Hannah does in 1 Samuel chapter 1, where she's grieved over not having a child. And it says in verse 10 that she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord, and she wept bitterly in verse first. Verse 15, she says, I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. And see, here's what Jesus and Hannah teach us, is that our honest cry is heard by God on high. It's not in our hiding that we get to interact with God. It's actually in our honesty. It's why the psalmist will write in Psalm chapter 62, verse 8, Trust in Him at all times, O people, and pour out your heart before Him, because God is a refuge. See, in contrast to using our spirituality to diminish our humanity, and diminish our emotions. We actually, um, our spirituality is actually intended to deepen our humanity, to allow more of who God has created us to be to rise to the surface. And you may want to write this down. See, we don't encounter God by ignoring our emotions, but rather we encounter him when we engage them in a healthy way, when we bring them before him. This is a beautiful truth, friends, that you can bring your whole emotional, messed up, angry, disgusted, fearful, confused, doubting self before your great God and know that he hears you. I love the way that John Ortberg said it. He said, it's better to be an honest mess before God than a dishonest saint. And to that I say, amen. So we are journeying with Jesus while he's in this olive grove, the, the Gethsemane, that means the olive press, and he is being pressed. And in verse 38, here's what we're going to start to learn how to deal with uh, the feelings, the emotions that are raging inside of us, maybe even right now. It says this, verse 38, And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So notice what Jesus is doing. He's saying, hey, there's this emotion going on inside of me, and I need to identify it, and I need to name it. I need to name it. See, Jesus wasn't the least human person to ever live. He was actually the most human person to ever live. And the early church battled with heresies that rose up that said Jesus was something other than human or something more than just being human. That, that he, um, he was spiritual, but he wasn't physical. And the early church said, no, absolutely not. Jesus was human. He had emotions. But it shouldn't surprise us because as we read through the scriptures, we see that God has emotions. 
that God is jealous, that God has anger, that God is loving, that God has compassion, that God has joy. And maybe, maybe just maybe, being emotional isn't just part of being human. Maybe it's part of carrying the Imago Dei, the image of God. And see, if we're going to interact with our emotions in a healthy and honest way, here's the first thing that we've got to do. And I'd encourage you to write this down. We have got to name our emotions. Name your emotions. It starts with recognizing that there's something going on inside of us. And it may be that our physical body alerts us to something going on. Uh, We may feel like a pit in our stomach. Our heart may start to beat fast. We may start to get sweaty or our palms might start to get sweaty but we start to feel it somewhere in our body. And then I think what Jesus is teaching us to do is we we pause, we stop, and we ask ourselves, and we ask Jesus, what is it that I'm feeling and why am I feeling it? Well, what's, what's going on? See, there is power in naming our emotions. And I'm not the best person at this. (laughs) Um, You may not be either. I I usually live in the triad of sad, mad, glad, right? And those are my three emotions. (laughs) I would encourage you, and you can find it in our show notes also, but to download the emotion wheel. And it'll give you a lot more language for trying to figure out how you're actually feeling. I would encourage you though, at first, when you start to identify that you're having an emotion, to step back from it far enough to not judge it. Don't say this is a bad emotion or this is a good emotion. That we can step back from it and just say, this is what I'm feeling. Because when we start to judge an emotion, we end up getting into this counterproductive cycle of shaming ourselves and feeling guilt and, oh, I shouldn't feel that way even though I feel that way. Jesus just names it, throws it out there. God, I know that this is a plan, Father. I know that this is a plan that we have talked about, that we've interacted about, but I just need you to know how I'm feeling about it. I love the way that Dan Allender put it. He said this, ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality and reality is where we meet God. See, see, the opposite of the statement I made a few moments ago, that there's power in naming our emotions, the opposite of that is true also. There is great power in not naming our emotions. See, because the emotion that remains unidentified and unnamed has an immense control over us. They start to direct us and lead us and guide us, and we don't even know it's happening. See, we all do something with those emotions. Whether we detach or whether we're directed or whether we just try to bury it, we all do something with them. In Luke chapter 22, verse 45, the same text that talks about the same experience, it says that the disciples were sleeping because they were sorrowful. They didn't name it. They just sort of sort of tried to detach from it and move on, right? And it haunted them. Yeah, some of us, we turn to TV, we turn to shopping, we turn to food, we turn to alcohol, we turn to drugs, because there's unnamed things that swirl inside of us. But what if we started to believe that true spirituality is engagement with the world and ourselves as we actually are, not as we should be? That God wants to meet us in this moment, in the brokenness, in the chaos, 
in the job loss, in the questions, in the doubts, in the olive press, the Gethsemanes of our life. So how are you feeling? What are the emotions that are stirring up inside of you? Maybe spend some time today and think about that and try your best to name it. See, but here's the second thing that Jesus does. He says to his disciples, his friends, remain here with me and watch with me. So he doesn't just name his emotions. He shares his heart. He he invites other people in. And he says, come on, you guys, let's walk through this together. Now, they fail him miserably. (laughs) And anytime you start to do the same thing and start to open yourself up, my guess is that there's going to be people that support you and walk with you. And then there will also be people that unfortunately let you down. Can I encourage you? Don't let the people who let you down persuade you from being the kind of person that just holds all of your emotions in and never invites anybody in. That is not a risk worth taking. I love the way that Basil of Caesarea put it when he said, the creator arranged things so that we would need each other. Even Jesus needed people around him in his dark night of the soul. This could be a friend, it could be a small group, it could be a counselor, it could be a therapist, uh, it could be a neighbor, it could be a spouse. You need people. Invite people into your journey, name your emotions, and share your heart. So, Let me just try to guess what you're thinking. I I know there's some guys out there that are going, name my emotion and share my heart. Like, Paulson, what are you doing to us today, man? You're hanging us out to dry. And man, we just get into a mode of operating that um, isn't freedom and isn't life, but it's just normal. And so I want to encourage, if that's you, if that's what you're thinking, I want to just encourage you to push into this a little bit, to, to do what Jesus did and to trust that maybe his way is, is better than the way that you've been operating and hiding. See, here's what he says next, verse 39. It says, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So let me ask you a question. Does Jesus know what his father's will is? Yeah, he does. It was a plan that they had co-created. But I'd like to propose to you that Jesus isn't asking God, the Father, to divert from the mission. He's just simply asking, is this methodology the only way to accomplish the mission? And can't we relate to that? That we like what God does in our life when he grows us and when he changes us and when he transforms us, but we often don't like the methodology. Uh, Like, God, I want to learn patience, but I don't want to be interrupted. Uh, God, I want to learn to trust, but I don't want to take any risks. God, I want to love people, but I want to make sure that they love me back. God, I want to share my faith, but I don't want to be rejected. See, we can relate, can't we? To wanting to hold on to the mission and even being committed to holding on to the mission, but saying, can we at least talk about methodology? But here's what Jesus does three times in this text. He comes 
and he prays his request to his father. It's the third thing that we see that Jesus does with his emotions. He names them, he invites others into them, and then he prays his request. But does God listen? Does does a father listen to his son's prayer? Does God answer prayer? And if God does answer prayer, how does God answer prayer? I mean, we wrestle with this as followers of Jesus, don't we? God doesn't answer every single prayer in the way that we would want him to answer it. Somebody say amen to that. We've all been down that road. But let me ask you a question. Would you pray more or less if you knew that God was going to give you everything you asked for in prayer? I mean, think about it. We've all prayed for things that we didn't get, that afterwards we were really grateful we didn't get. That God had this better plan. And yet, when we read through the scriptures, it is unequivocally clear that God responds to his people's prayers. There are more if-then statements attached to prayer than anything else in the Bible. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, If my people, if my people, who are called by my name, would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I would hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Things hang in the balance of prayer. Or you turn to Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. It says, And then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for the first, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, your prayers have been heard, and I have come. This is an angel talking to Daniel. I have come because of your words. An angel comes in response to prayer. Or look at James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. See, it's, it's this in the Greek, it's this idea of the energized prayer of a righteous person has great working energy. See, Plato's God was an unmoved mover, unaffected by his creation. But the God of the scriptures, the God of the Bible is responsive, not reactive. He's responsive to the prayers of his people. He's loving. He's committed. He's in relationship with his creation. As E.M. Bounds wrote that God shapes the world through prayer. But he doesn't answer every prayer the way that we'd like. And we don't know the exact equation of how it works. I mean, we love to know, right? If we do X, Y, and Z, then God will pop out the answer that we're hoping for. Sort of like the exercise plan, right? If we do this and eat this, then we'll lose weight, right? We want prayer to work in that same pragmatic equation-oriented kind of way. And the reality is it just doesn't. But here's what we know. We know that God hears. We know that God responds, not always in the way that we want him to. I I think of C.S. Lewis in Shadowlands, this movie that talked about his grief over losing his wife, Joy. There's this great scene about prayer. And at the end of that scene, he says this. See, he says, I don't know if prayer changes God, but I do know it changes me. And we know that God interacts with the prayers of his people, that he hears them and he responds. So what if this week you took some time to carve out and to pray, 
to go before your heavenly father and to pour out your heart. I mean, maybe you use the, the Psalms. They were the Hebrew people's prayer, ancient prayer book. They give language to some of our emotion and even some of our request. You could use a simple acrostic pray where you pause and rejoice and ask and then yield. But just know this, as you pray and as you ask and as you open your heart to hope and dream and imagine a different future, it might feel a little bit like you're in an olive press, <laughs> like, like you're sorrowful, like, like you're being sort of wrung out. And that's okay because God will meet you in that moment as much as he'll meet you on the mountaintop. One of the things I'm really grateful for are people within the Christian community that give language to some of these things that are going on in our soul. And one of those people for me historically has been Rich Mullins. He wrote a song a number of years ago entitled Playing Hard to Get. And I think it gives language to what we oftentimes feel when we're in the olive press. Would you listen as our worship team sings this song? My guess is you'll sense some resonance with what Rich Mullins wrote.
I love that last line. I don't know where you're leading me unless you've led me here, where I'm lost enough to let myself be led. And it almost seems like Jesus' prayer, his request before his Father is, God, you, you do, Father, you do what you think is best. See, Jesus names his emotion. He invites others into his journey. He shares his heart. And then he prays his request. And then we're going to look at a fourth thing that he does. And this is the healthy way to deal with our emotions. Verse 39, um, Matthew records this. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not I will, but as you will. Karl Barth referred to this as the defiant nevertheless. It's the caveat in our prayers. And I've heard some people um, say that this is almost like a cop-out, like we don't believe that God would actually move, so we just pray, your will be done. It's only a cop-out if we don't genuinely mean it. (laughs) And Jesus means it. Father, your will be done. It's an act of submission. It's not an act of stoicism. He is involved and he's pleading, but he's saying, Father, my life is before you. Do as you will. Your kingdom come and your will be done. See, prayer lays the groundwork for a life of surrender. I mean, you show me a person who is obedient to Jesus and I will show you a person who spends time in prayer. And see, here's the fourth thing that we see. We name our emotions, we share our heart, we present our request, and we choose surrender. Not my will, but yours be done. I heard someone say at one point um, in my walk with Jesus that being in God's will is the safest place to be. Well, right after Jesus prays that he's in his Father's will, he's on a Roman cross. And so it depends on how we define safe, right? I love the way that C.S. Lewis writes about it, where you have, according to Mr. Beaver, he's talking about Aslan, the Christ figure in Chronicles of Narnia. And he says, um, uh, Susan asks him, is he safe? And he responds, safe? 
Oh no, he's not safe, but he's good, but he's good. See, God's will isn't the safest place to be, but it's the most beautiful, the most life-giving, the most whole, the most exciting place that we could ground our lives. See, the beginning of the Christian life is a cross. We're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. But this week, as we start to wind down our time, can I encourage you to just write three things down? These are three things that help us actually step into this life that Jesus is inviting us to walk into. Number one, as we talk about surrender, number one, we've got to remember that our perspective is limited. It's limited. We know a fraction of what God knows. I hope we can all agree on that. Number two, I want to invite you today to just reaffirm your trust in Jesus. And not clarity in exactly where he's leading and what he's doing, but that you trust him. There's this great story. Um, this man, John Cavanaugh, went to work with Mother Teresa in Calcutta for three months. And he went up to her and he said, uh, Mother Teresa, I'd like for you to pray for me. And she said, sure, what do you want me to pray for you about? And he said, I'd like to pray that I have clarity like you have clarity. And she responded by saying to him, oh, I've, I've never had clarity. I've just simply had trust. So I'll pray for you that you can have trust. Yeah. We remember our perspective is limited. We reaffirm our trust in God and remind ourselves, we remind ourselves that we are dearly and deeply loved. You right now, even if you're a mess and even if your emotions are swirling and you're angry and you're sad and you're disappointed and you're frustrated or maybe you're joyful, but whatever state you are in right now, please hear me, you are loved. Jesus surrendered his life so that you could honestly pour out your heart knowing that your good father loves you. So I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if you feel like you're in the olive press, like you're sorrowful and like you're troubled, like you're, like you're um, disappointed and frustrated or doubting. I don't know where you're at, but here's what I do know, that God does not want you to hide. He wants you to be honest because your honest cry is heard by God on high. And it's okay to say, God, I don't like this. And it's okay to say, God, I don't think I'm all right right now. And it's okay to say, God, I wish my life were a little bit different. But what we see from the life of Jesus in this text is the way forward, an invitation forward. We have to have our Gethsemane moments where we come before God and pour out our heart. And then we need to get up and surrender, and move forward in faith. And so maybe that's a decision that you make today, that you're going to say, God, I'm going to just, I'm going to pour out my heart before you, and then I'm going to surrender, and I'm going to move forward. Maybe today you name some of the emotions that are swirling inside of you. Maybe today you admit some things that you wouldn't admit before. See, at the end of that movie, Inside Out, that totally messed me up, you have this character who is sadness. And it's sadness that holds these memories. And it's almost like this little 11-year-old girl has to come to terms with what's real and true. She has to be honest in order to be healed and in order to move forward. 
See, write this down as we close. True strength is found in honest surrender. It struck me in Luke's account of this story that Jesus is attended to by angels. He's strengthened by God as he pours out his heart. So may we, Manual Faith, may we be people who pour out our heart to God, who are honest and who reject the idea that we have to hide in order to be safe. Would we name our emotion? Would we invite others in? Would we present our requests? And would we be the kind of people who move forward and surrender? And as we do, as you do, may you sense the power of God resting on you in new ways. Grace and peace, friends.